Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I am just so excited to welcome to the SASPOD, Rowan Cantor. She is an assistant professor of English and by courtesy of comparative literature at Stanford. She's also a translator from Spanish to English and the winner of the Suzanne Sontag Prize for translation. She has just published a new book called South Asian Writers, Latin American Literature and the Rise of Global English. It's published 2022 by Cambridge University Press. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Rowan. Thanks for having me. I am obligated to rep that this book has also won a prize. So this is the winner of the Helen Tartar First Book Subvention Prize from the American Comparative Literature Association. And it has set up a precedent where now every single book that I put out will have to win some sort of prize. It's very frustrating. <laughs> well, I didn't know that. So uh, thank you very much for bringing that in. Congratulations. And yet now the bar is set uh, very high, but I'm sure you'll be able to rise to it. Uh, I love the book, which is rich and incredibly capacious. Um, and also beautifully written, including, and I hope I'm not spoiling anything, two alternative endings. Yeah, no, not a spoiler, because, um, you know, you have to decide how it ends for yourself. It's almost like a choose your own adventure. There was one person that I talked to, Adrian Hahn, who was the designer for an experimental fiction that I talk about in the book by Mohsen Hamid, that is actually a choose your own adventure game. And having read that, I was just like really tickled by that form. And so I kind of tried it out for the end of the book. I, it was it, And it wasn't an, a complete, I mean, it was a surprise, of course, but you, um, there's lots of little bits in the book where you show yourself to be very creative with language. Do you think of yourself as a creative writer? Well, I am a twin. And my sister is a creative writer and also a journalist. And so oh, I think that we have very narrowly created niches within the same general set of talents. And so I'm not allowed to be a creative writer because otherwise she would like come and gobble me up. But I'm <laughs> just about as close as you can be on the side of, uh, of academic writing. And did your publisher push, push back against that at all? I was curious when I was reading the book. You know, actually, they were really, it was a great experience overall with Cambridge. And I actually had a really, really good experience specifically with my copy editor. Uh, I have had bad experiences with copy editors, but this person both kind of understood what I was trying to do in a lot of places. And then also like rein me in, because if you do too much all the time, the things that you're really good at doing will not stand out. So um, yeah, in general, it was a really, really um, productive, cooperative working relationship with Cambridge. I really liked being part of this series. That's so great. And I, I think it does. The enjoyment shows. Um, so let's get into it. Perhaps we can start with an overview, a slow elevator pitch, pitch, a slow elevator pitch, if you will. I'm going to say that again. 
Perhaps we can start with an overview, a slow elevator pitch, if you will. So think of a very slow, not one of those high-speed American ones. Take your time uh, of, of what the book is about. Sure. I, I feel like this is particularly directed at me because I'm a very fast talker. So oh, I'll try I to didn't slow mean down. No, I, I know. I'm kidding, you to like, feel rushed. <laughs> it's, it's a particularly good note for me. Um, so this is a book that is coming out in a world literature series. And it's about thinking about a really, really different origin story and circulation story for world literature. So the history of world literature as a term with purchase in the United States or the sort of Euro-American Academy, uh, Euro Academy is this idea of a, let's say a shelf, right? Cause that's a really active metaphor in the book. A shelf of books that is very multilingual and multi-located in terms of its origin points, but is really understood to be curated and circulated by agents in the global North. And a lot of the critiques of that idea of world literature and the way that it is sort of instituted as a curricular program in the US have to do with who makes the decisions, who wants something called world literature. What these critiques don't see and what I wanted to focus on in my book is the way that actually there is an audience that really wants to do something politically interesting with world literature from within different parts of the global south. And this particular vision of world literature that I call the countershelf is a way of um, creating connections between parts of the global south that otherwise don't have a strong historical connection. So the, the locations that I'm talking about in this book are South Asia and Latin America, and in, within South Asia specifically, I'm talking about India and Pakistan. So there are probably other stories to be told about Bangladesh, to be told about Sri Lanka, but they're not part of this book. Um, what I see this cohort of authors doing is using references to Latin American literature, readings of Latin American literature, encounters with Latin American literary figures as a way of staging a debate with their emplacement within the framework of post-colonial literature or what's now being called global Anglophone literature, and specifically with their emplacement within an English exclusive canon. So they're using a gesture to a particular type of multilingual canon in translation to talk about a way of becoming literary in a colonial language that doesn't necessarily take on all the baggage of the particular colonial history of that language, and specifically the colonial literary history of that language. Perhaps we can start uh, with um, delving deeper into details of the book uh, with Octavio Paz. I, I, I imagine not many people will know much about the, the reciprocal relationship between South Asia and Latin America. So can we start with him? Sure. And um, he's a good place to start because it also points to the kind of limits of reciprocity as a way of looking at this relationship. It's like very awkwardly uneven in certain moments right. and in certain styles. So actually a lot of people, especially in Mexico and India, know that Octavio Paz was the ambassador to India from 1962 to 1968, which is a really like long time to live um, pretty, pretty exclusively in India. If you're familiar with Baz's work, you will know that that era was also a really, really stylistically rich and diverse era in his both poetic and critical writing. So it comes after his most canonical writing in the Labyrinth of Solitude in the 1950s, but it also like predates and in really interesting ways informs his later canonical writing like um, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, right? Uh, the Traps of Faith, which comes out in 82. Um, 
in this period, he's doing a lot of super exciting experimental uh, poetry writing. And I have a friend, Isabel Gomez, who helped me think about pause in the chapter that I write, chapter two of the book, um, because she's working on pause's relationship with experimental poetry circles in Brazil at the same time. So there's a lot of ways in, in which he's circulating globally, but famously, he writes a lot about India and the representational styles that he used to write about India were popular among other Latin American writers of the mid-century and especially uh, Severo Sardui, who's a very canonical sort of Cuban writer who is sometimes known by post-colonial scholars, sometimes not. Um, especially Severo Sardui, he produces this particular kind of aesthetic for talking about India, which is actually really interesting to look at. He also was personally involved with the Indian art and literary scene, especially the one kind of centered in Delhi. Mm -hmm. And while many people in India know that this is true, very few people have done the work to kind of uncover what it meant. So the second chapter in the book is looking at how, again, would we read these two practices in tandem, the type of writing that Paz did in India, which is important for his career, but rather niche within Latin American studies in terms of being a topic that people talk about. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing, this group of writers that's just wholesale overlooked in a really important transitional period of the 60s and 70s in Indian Anglophone writing and writing in poetry, which is a genre that just does not get attention either within Anglophone criticism or within um, world literature, or mostly I think within post-colonial studies, except for in really kind of specific ways around, let's say like Urdu literature gets some attention, but right. or, or like the ghazal, but not a lot of other poetic forms. So the kind of modernist poetic forms that these writers were experimenting with were developed kind of in conversation with pause and then were circulating in really fascinating and um, really underexplored ways in the 1960s that offer a, a very different template for what we think about as world literary circulation. You already referenced uh, in in your kind of opening statement about the book the counter shelf and and this is I'd, I'd say if your if your book were a novel the counter shelf would be the main protagonist. Um, <laughs> can you explain to us what you mean by the counter shelf and what's it, what its role in the book is as well? Sure. So, like I said, right. Um, the counter shelf is a particular mode of reading and recapitulating world literature that is used rhetorically for particular ends. Um, and it happens to be, in this case, this collection of specific Latin American texts. We can talk about who's on the shelf and who doesn't get to be on the shelf a little right. later. Um, but specific Latin American texts that take on a different meaning as they circulate among South Asian authors and that then are used to make certain arguments. So the most obvious version of this is actually 1980 for Salman Rushdie's very famous essay, The Commonwealth Does Not Exist, mm -hmm. which is his kind of pushback about being included in a category of Anglophone writing called the Commonwealth coming out of Britain's former colonial holdings without any of the politics that attach to post-colonial studies, but incidentally, very much the same canon that usually gets taught as post-colonial studies, right? So whereas it is possible to teach a more multilingual canon in post-colonial um, scholarship, we don't tend to do that. And so it is, in effect, also a reading against a certain version of, of like a post-colonial world. And what he says in the middle of that essay is that I don't see any particular commonality between my experiences or my writing and the writing of these other people that I'm told that I'm supposed to sit next to on the shelf. Instead, I argue that my writing is more related to, and he uses a sort of awkward phrasing of like, um, 
writing of those places that are less powerful or least powerful. And then he talks specifically about the magical realism of the Latin Americans, right? So for him, that gesture is a way of pushing back against a certain type of categorization that implies a certain type of genealogy for his writing. Mm -hmm. That gesture of pushing back against an Anglophone dominated canon is recapitulated over and over and over again in the, the group of people who are otherwise very, very different, right? That make up this countershelf that I read about in this text. The other thing to say about the countershelf is that it has kind of four main um, components. The first is this kind of contrary um, orientation to an existing canonical formation. The second is the idea of curation so that there's often an interpersonal relationship like the one that I talk about with Octavio Paz um, that informs why people become attached to certain writing. The third idea is circulation, um, meaning that we have to look at the really material engines and also the ideological engines through which certain literatures become available, including importantly in this case, like how they get translated, when they get translated. Um, and then finally, the last is uh, this idea of contest where really importantly for me, this is a gesture that many different kinds of authors make. Right? So it doesn't mean just one thing. It means all kinds of different things depending on who is making it. And yet it is useful to think about all of those gestures as somehow kind of like sitting together on a shelf. The one last thing to say about the counter shelf is that I ultimately came to that idea through this metaphor in the Macaulay Minute. And I sort of hate myself because it's such a, it's such a cliche to talk right. about the Macaulay Minute right. <laughs> in post-colonial criticism. Um, and for those of you who don't know, the Macaulay Minute is the kind of condensation of the legal decision in the 1830s to transition away from supporting education in India in Sanskrit and Arabic and towards supporting an English language education. And it's sort of like the origin story for how English becomes a global language, but also how English literature becomes a really freighted site of like colonial power. So in that document, as many people will know, he says that a single good shelf from a European or a single shelf from a good European library is worth the whole literature of Indian Arabia, right? So like super racist, not even the most racist thing that he says in that text by a long shot, but it's very resonant and has picked, it has been picked up by other scholars. Venkat Mani is the one that I talk most about in the book. Um, and that idea of, of wanting to have some other library that is not the good shelf of the, or the shelf of the good European library, but some other kind of shelf, that really does seem to be super resonant. And so that's sort of where that term comes from. Got it. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, that quote, I guess it's, you can't not use it, but I, so don't hate yourself for it. I, it's, it, it has a function, but we don't have to spend too much time on it. Um, Okay, so let's see where to go. Uh, I want to talk about language. So um, you you mentioned the word anglophone. You've said that a number of times, also as a kind of alternative to um, post no not a Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. um, but clearly, the Latin American writers are not anglophone. Um, so then there's the the issue of translation that you also uh, briefly mentioned. Um, I was thinking while you were speaking, I went to a lecture years ago in Benares by Rowington Mystery about his work. And there was somebody in the audience who kept asking him about writing in English. Mm -hmm. And it's why Canadian. 
And <laughs> yeah, I somehow I don't know why that that seems to that seems to have been really the obvious. That was not his answer. It was looking back on it, I was a little bit weird. Um, but the the audience member and, and and mystery got into this kind of fight about what constitutes an Indian language. Mm-hmm. And I feel he could have just said I'm Canadian. That that would have solved it. But he didn't. He said English is an Indian language. Like he got into the kind of principle of it. And the other person wouldn't have it. And anyway, so um, so there is that, right? I mean, English is to South Asia what Spanish is to Latin America in some ways, in many ways, but it is way more complicated than that. Um, the perceived um, ubiquity of Spanish in Latin America also says a lot about the way language is portrayed. So maybe the two situations are a little bit more common than we think, or they have a lot more in common. Anyway, um, I think you're still with me and looking at your mm-hmm. face. <laughs> yeah, I've thought a lot about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And, and you and I have talked about it before. Okay, so I don't I don't even know what the question is, but uh, well, here you go. Go. I, yeah, let me. So when you're just to, to zoom back and then we'll zoom into the question at hand, even just trying to describe some sort of analogical relationship between the colonial power of Spanish and its relationship to indigenous languages in the Americas and the colonial power of English and its relationship to indigenous languages in India, we're already coming to one of the kind of central disciplinary conflicts, which has made it difficult to like trace what I do in this book. So one of the knots that I had to entangle before I got to the interesting stuff that I actually cared about was like, why is it that postcolonial studies as a field withdrew? from discussing Latin Americans as part of its constitutive part when Latin America is so very obviously colonized. I mean, so is North America, but that's a sort of different topic. Um, why is it that then the body of decolonial scholarship grew up in a way that like is, ex- is explicitly exclusive of, of South Asian um, examples in part because they felt like they were so dominated by specifically South Asia. So there's a history there of really struggling to talk about the experience of colonization and maybe also the experience of coloniality in a way that is coherent for both of these regions. Maybe there isn't one. To give a little bit more specific background about um, the language situations and how they are and are comparable, um, there's just like a way longer history of colonial domination, right, in Latin America than in India. So there is just much more time for indigenous languages and cultures to be marginalized. Um, There are certain state entities or certain countries in Latin America where indigenous languages have parity with or sorry, with Spanish in a way that is a little bit more similar to the constitutional recognition of of, uh, vernacular languages, let's say Pashas in um, India, those would be um, Paraguay and Bolivia, and I think a couple other ones, but those are the ones that come immediately to mind. I think in Bolivia, that's a really recent change, you know, within my lifetime. Um, But even in those contexts, the literary culture for those communities, meaning like a written printed literary culture is, is in a really, really different place and has been for a really long time historically than the literary culture for Bhashas in the South Asian context. Right. So there just, there is a certain comparison and and yet there are also ways in which that comparison is like hard to make. Yeah. All of this is, is slightly irrelevant when it comes face to face with like the, the kind of behemoth that is Anglophone, 
right? Yes. And I do in the book talk about the relationship between Anglophone and post-colonial. So I was hired as a, a global Anglophone scholar. And in, in the room, they're like, well, what is global Anglophone? It's like, I don't know. It's made up. And it was just made up, you know, but you've chosen to use it. So I have to tell you what it means. But um, as I say in the book, global Anglophone would is used to talk about not the US, not the UK. So parts of the world that speak English that aren't those two places. Um, and it is used, so that's like a modification of global and it's used Anglophone as, as opposed to other languages. But what it really functionally means is this kind of future oriented position where the global Anglophone is the globe where English is spoken. You know, it's, the, it's like the whole world speaks English. In that context of Anglophone hegemony, which sort of transitions really smoothly from British colonial power to American imperial power, even Spanish is a language with a completely different positionality. And so most of the writers that I talk about in this book understand Spanish within that contemporary frame of hegemonic Anglophone power, as opposed to within its own frame as another colonial language. Now, again, that's like a fantasy, right? That's a very partial understanding of what Spanish is and what it means. That fantasy has a lot of power and a lot of what the book is doing is kind of unearthing these fantasies and talking about like what they do, whether or not they are fundamentally correct. You mentioned, you talk um, towards the end of the book about Subro Bandopadier, who writes poetry in Bangla and Spanish. Uh, but not in English as a conscious choice. And it made me think of Jhumpa Lahiri's foray into Italian. Uh, I just finished reading her, her book, Whereabouts, and so it's, it's fresh in the mind. And I was just wondering if there's something about the way that certain languages, I'm also thinking about my own existence uh, in English, which is not my first language, but how it really is. Mm -hmm. um, but I always feel I'm slightly different in Dutch. Um, and I think that's partially because of the people that I speak to <laughs> uh, when I'm speaking in Dutch, which is primarily family. But there's something about the way that we're not exactly the same person across languages. And so I was just wondering if for these authors, um, they feel that going into different languages is, a, a, is a, like a liberation from being pushed into certain forms. And I don't just mean literary forms. I also mean ways of being. Yeah. Um, well, so 100% that is true. I think that we could also think about somebody like Beckett, Beckett's choice to write in French, or Conrad's choice to write in English, right? There's a lot of people who end up writing in a language that is not the language of their birth, and sometimes not the language of their education, right? Mm -hmm. When we talk about why, why do people write in English, it's like often people write in English because although they do speak other languages, they are not educated until the literary culture of those other languages. In fact, on a completely different topic when I was able to go to the Jaipur Lit Fest a few years ago prior to COVID, um, I heard a talk about um, somebody who was promoting audiobooks in different languages, different Indian languages. And they said like one of our main markets for these audiobooks are people who fluently speak Hindi, let's say, but they do not have the the training to read a novel in Hindi, but they, if it's read to them, they can understand it, right? So that is something that's like a really common thing. This is almost the inversion of that where you're taking on a new language as a way of defamiliarizing, right? Um, that's something I talk about in chapter two, estrangement as a kind of aesthetic practice. Uh, the other person I write about in the epilogue who does this is Taimiya Zaman, who has been here, I think, affiliated with um, 
with the Center for South Asia and who went to Mexico to start learning Spanish because she wanted to kind of alienate herself from an, a kind of instinctive response that she had to reading about pre-Columbian history in mm. Mexico. And so she wanted to have this kind of linguistic experience which produces this particular kind of cognitive estrangement. And I think that that's like a really interesting and sometimes common thing that can happen both when people write in a language that is not the language of their primary education, and also um, when people read in translation, I think that also happens because translation in, in its best forms allows the what is called the target language to be impacted by some of the um, some of the elements of the source language. I've recently heard a podcast. Um, God, I wish that wouldn't sound so bougie. Okay, I recently <laughs> listened to a podcast. <laughs> um, there's a Dutch movie, it's on Netflix, it's called Anne Plus. Um, it's a film about a queer woman as she makes her way through the world. And uh, it's just a Dutch, you know, just a Dutch movie, small movie. Uh, and then Netflix got interested. And so now it's available in 190 countries. Mm. Uh, and in many countries, it's dubbed because people don't do subtitles. And so in the interview, in the podcast uh, with the actress, the main actress who plays Anne Plus, she said, that she'd never really thought about how much acting involved her voice until mm -hmm. faced with the idea that now other people were going to voice her. And it really bothered her that these people would not be young queer women like herself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, realistically, in the vast majority of these dubbing situations, they're not going to be young queer women like her. They're just going to be the people who do voiceovers. And so, anyway, I was thinking of that while you were talking about translation and, and, um, how you're really just giving your voice away in some ways when your book is being translated. Well, let me sort of bring that back to one of the earlier questions that you asked about language. Firstly, that's the main focus of my new project is, is about like what it means, what voice means in the context oh. of literature, in the context of writing about Bihar. That's a different topic for a different SAS pod, but, <laughs> but it reminds me of one of my favorite pieces of scholarship in this kind of field of what we might call Anglophone South Asian writing, which is Rashmi Salana's uh, suitable text for a vegetarian audience about the translation of a suitable boy into Hindi. And what Vikram said, says about that translation is that for him, he was imagining that these, most of the dialogue in the book took place in Hindi. Right? He's writing English as if it were Hindi, which is a really common thing for people to say when writing um, Anglophone literature from South Asia. It's like it's, I'm actually writing it almost as like a screen for another language. This is a concept that Rebecca Walkowitz talks about as porn translated, which like maybe, maybe not. But um, for him, then the translation of the text into Hindi was a kind of back translation instead of a, a sort of what we would think of as an original translation, yeah. which, which poses something interesting about what it means for this concept of voice and the kind of centrality that we imagine voice has for, for identity, for self, right? Um, in texts that either come in through translation or then are imagining themselves as a kind of self-translation. So yeah, that's a fascinating insight. Yes, and I, I, I love what you say about um, Vikram Set because I, I don't love how some Anglophone authors deal with that, the way that um, 
the 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 sisters' letters are portrayed in Monica Ali's Brick Lane. Is all it's the kind of very broken English, and that's mm-hmm. meant to be somehow code for Bengali. Um, mm-hmm. And then it happens again much more recently in a burning, um, where mm-hmm. where the person the yep. uh, the hijra does not speak good good. They're speaking in Hindi, and that somehow becomes broken Big English. English. And yeah. you, <laughs> Just... yeah, yeah. I mean, it's actually like a really it's a really, really troubling, there is, I, I don't think there's anybody who's really cracked the code of how to do this well, to be quite honest, Clearly. Um, or to do it well, like in the texture of the text, right? And again, I don't want to go into to work that's not necessarily pertinent for this book, but I do have other work where I talk with um, Indian American voice actors about um, about voicing audiobooks, and they are able to layer things into voice performance that you can't necessarily get on the page, which are, you know, at the very least, they're very interesting choices that they're making in these texts. But um, I think eventually it's not necessarily choices of vocabulary or um, the structuring of utterance, but actually some of the other ways that we situate dialogue in text. But I mean, people have found a whole bunch of really creative, terrible ways of representing this. I don't know if I've ever seen any good ways. Right, right. Um, of course, I, well, we could talk about this forever. Um, I greatly look forward to your future work on this. So this is an, another, the next Sasquatt lined up. I love that. I love how we're um, planning into the future. All right, let's talk about gender. And um, I was a little hesitant to posit this question, but you encouraged me. So um The question that I wrote when I was reading was, where are the women? Mm -hmm. They appear a little bit later on in in chapter four, Anita Desai, Sunny Singh, a few others, um, Zaman. um, And you do address it in some way when you write that. um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I love this. Uh, You write that uh, Singh and Desai taking up magical realism in the early 2000s, um, participating in a more general shift from masculine to feminine accompanies and then you cheekily say coincidentally no doubt (laughs) commentations about the decline and then fall of the form Um, and I don't think I saw any female Latin American writer in your book and assuming you were you were not making any conscious decisions to exclude anyone more than wanting you to talk about why there are not more female writers, although I do want you to talk about that, but actually I'm more interested in, in your mental health. What was that like? <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> I was a little triggered reading it, but you had to write this. So, yeah. So. Um, I, I'm sorry to say that it wasn't super triggered, except for when I was writing, I was reading the stuff that was like kind of explicitly misogynist. And what's interesting is the misogyny um, in some of the texts is, is understands itself to be borrowing from misogyny in the, you know, in the Latin American material, which is present, <laughs> you know, like, okay, so how to answer this question. I am interested in, in thing, in phenomena, let's say, that are kind of like masculine because of the way the phenomenon are structured, mm-hmm. right? So how, let's say that more clearly. Um, one of the things that was really fun to talk about in this book were the relationships among people. So I really care about the fact that a literary field is not just a bunch of people like putting their own book on the shelf and not caring about what's around it. Mm -hmm. It's very centrally about people thinking about their relationships to others, not only in this fantasized relationship with a a kind of um, body of sources, let's say, but almost 
as much in a conversation with other people that they imagine to be their contemporaries or their predecessors within the same uh, discourse. In fact, a lot of what happens in chapter two with the poets is that they say, we did actually have a tradition of Anglophone writing that was quite long, but we didn't know anything about that tradition. So th we thought we were making it all up. And that's part of the reason that we looked all over the world for other models, right? And specifically to Latin America. When you talk about coteries, you tend to talk about spaces that have different kinds of exclusions and especially exclusions around gender. So that's one of the things is I find coteries really interesting to talk about, but unless you're talking about a feminist collective, it is kind of de facto a masculinist collective. <laughs> and so that's one of the things. Um, and then you see the kind of exception that proves the rule on someone like um, Gita Kapoor, right? Who's really important in chapter two, but she, her, presence there and is in some way structured by her relationship to Vivian Sundaram. Like not totally, she had an, an independent life, but, and it's also her willingness to probably be the only woman in a lot of room. Right. So that produces a certain kind of effect. Um, I, what's interesting too then is like how booms get constructed as kind of like publication events and how the fantasies of the people who circulate these texts also tend to inform, um, you know, who gets highlighted and who does not. So we know from scholarship by people that like uh, Jill Robinson and Deb Castillo and a lot of other people that there was a real tendency to uplift men's writing as um, central to the Latin American boom. Um, to use the kind of otherness of Latin America to celebrate a certain kind of machismo, right? Mm -hmm. um, to, and, and that meant like the making more minor of figures like Clarice Lispector or um, Elena Garro or people like that. Like there were actually a lot of women writers working at this time, but they just weren't doing some of the things that the external audience for these texts were interested in, a lot of which like have to do with misogyny of various stripes. Um, yeah, and then so uh, the combination of these two things, I think leads to a very male uh, form. And it was so hard for me initially to put together this, this archive and convince people that it exists. I mean, the first, I think, four years after I graduated was just screaming at people that such a thing even existed. And I was just like, whatever, if it has to be a, like a sausage fest, then so be it. Right. <laughs> um, but, but it really is. Um, and, and it's something that I try to ameliorate to the extent that I can by making my syllabi covertly very female or non-male, let's just say. Um, and so the picture of a literary sphere that students get in my classroom is quite different than the one that I was able to portray in this book because the, the motivations are really different. Right, right, right. Uh, this, uh, thank you for, for that's helpful. Thank you for clarifying that. And, and you seem to have come through it all right. So my concern about your well-being is, uh, I'm reassured. Um, so we do need to end this conversation with talking about magical realism or we can't not talk about magical realism. And, and it's, I mean, it's a dense topic anyway. And, but, but reading how and what you write about it and reading about it in the context of your book, it just opened up so many more avenues of questioning for me. And um, one of them was this, um, this, <laughs> 
this idea that magical realism is kind of a, a, an ethnocentric white Protestant scientific notion that such a thing even exists, mm. which I'm not sure, maybe that's a really old idea. I'm not sure that I've ever fully thought about that as much as while I was reading your book. Um, and then recently I had a conversation with a colleague and we were kind of chuckling that when we were first studying India as undergraduates, that A.L. Basham's, the wonder that was India was still kind of part of a canon. Um, so that that notion of, of other places as being wondrous. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you say, let's see, Latin American reality somehow overflows the category of the real, real, quote unquote. And I would say that would be the same for India and South Asia. Um, so is... Is it magical because of our our white or our, our ethnocentric, our European, our American notion of what realism, reality of realism is? How does all of this help us think through this this very prominent category of magical realism? I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of reorient some of the things that you've said. Thank you. Um, okay, so firstly, like I did not want to write about magical realism because I don't really care about magical realism. Wow, <laughs> I have enjoyed different, different pieces. Of, of magical realist writing, I don't hate it. I actually enjoy it. Um, I said what I said about like the feminization of the form because I think yeah. like when I went back, I was asked to write something about magical realism as a kind of standalone. And I, when I went back, I was like, wow, this is like a really prominent thing and it should be talked about more. The fact that like, the fact actually that, that women's involvement in this is in so many fields reduces the prestige of the field. Right. Um, I mean, that might be another answer to the question I asked you. Like, this is a book about high literature. If I weren't invested in that category because I didn't want to get tenure, then I could write a really different book that probably had a wider um, representative base. Right. I do want your next book to have as a blurb, author blurb. I don't care about magical realism. I think that's. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, don't tell anyone except for everyone who listens to this. But, But I've been really open about that. I'm not motivated as much by. I mean, I came to a position where I felt like I had to, to argue about magical realism, but I actually wanted to write this book precisely to say magical realism is the least important part of this history. And it is yes. the only part of this history that ever gets talked about. Yeah. Um, but then I wrote a chapter that I did enjoy. So, okay. If that is the case, one of the reasons that the feminization of magical realism goes along with this loss of prestige is because it gets associated more with genres which are more about pleasure and wish fulfillment, specifically um, capital R romance, right? And, um, and genre fiction, especially fantasy. These are both, um, their romance is sort of more embodied and it's, it's more about like the fulfillment of specific wishes. And then um, fantasy is a lot about wonderment, right? Um, and those positive attachments, as opposed to the sort of negative critical attachments of magical realism as like a, um, as a contested way of looking at the world. We're just uncomfortable, I think, generally with positive feelings as Mm -hmm. a critical practice. And so this has a specific history in colonialism because those positive feelings of wonderment um, are associated with certain um, rhetorics of discovery, to use the term from Christopher Johnson, I think, um, these rhetorics of discovery, where the experience, the, the actual violence of discovering new lands as a colonial practice is associated effectively with this kind of um, 
sort of cognitive and emotional experience of, of experiencing something for the first time. Yes. Right. Whether or not the kind of emotional life produced by magical realism reproduces that experience for a white audience is hotly debated. And there's a wonderful book by uh, Geronimo Arellano called the, uh, it is something about affect and magical realism. And hopefully we'll find the title later, but um, he wrote a whole book sort of Mm -hmm. unpacking this because that's how big a topic it is. Within that, there is this counter narrative that what magical realism does is not reproduce this experience of wonderment as this this kind of like titillating experience of, of, you know, like possession and discovery. But instead, what it's doing is revealing that different cosmological orientations to the world actually like can produce completely different experiences of reality. Right. So if you allow those cosmologies to be next to each other as opposed to violently suppressing one with the other, um, then what you're doing is kind of like decolonizing your perspective on the world. In addition to these, there is another explanatory framework, which is a little bit more related to the second, that talks about the kind of scale of violence of colonial power and imperial power as they are experienced in the global South as being excessive to the kind of narrow boundaries of verisimilitude in a particular representative um, genre called like realism, right? So magical realism is a, is a different understanding of verisimilitude than realism. Those orientations, the sort of two second ones that I talked about versus the first one, they don't match. You have to pick one side or the other. And there was a while during which all of these different differently situated writers in the global South were really interested in the second two in different ways and had a lot of faith that that's actually what a representative practice called magical realism could unearth. Um, And then they sort of lost faith in it for a bunch of reasons, some legitimate, some sort of bullshitty. (laughs) And and now actually what's interesting is in in the immediate present, in the last five years, I think we're seeing a turn to what people would prefer to call speculative fiction, but is in fact magical realism in a lot of cases, that is trying to re excavate those more radical valences. So, you know, Exit West would be the, the very obvious version of this, where this kind of like magical portal enables a lot of insights about the sociological reality of migration and refugee crisis. I think we are um, out of time. (laughs) I just want to give you the offer. We've only just started and I actually look forward to many uh, cups of tea with you now that campus is opening up again and uh, to talk much more about this book. Is there any particular point that you feel that I missed that you really feel it's important that uh, listeners to the Sasspot get about your book? And uh, You don't have to mention where to get it. We're going to link to that (laughs) in the notes. (laughs) Um, I feel like we've covered a lot. I think the one other thing to mention is just the third chapter of the book, which in a way is like the oddest fit, but has to do with the way that these fantasies about the relationship between Latin America and South Asia get transacted on the location of medieval Spain um, and have yes. to do specifically. So there's another question that the question other than like, why are there so many men in this archive is like, why are there so many Muslims in this archive? This is yes. an overwhelmingly Muslim archive. Right. Um, and in fact, the, the points of attachment for Muslim writers and Hindu writers or, or other kinds of writers and for some Christians and people in there um, is different. Right. So what is it that makes Muslims predominate on this list? And that is something that I talk about in chapter three. And then also these kind of deep questions that came up at the edges of other questions about like 
how does this have to do with a relationship among fields and this really, really complicated question about analogies between the history of the two places that also gets worked out in this territory in this like sort of distant time. So if those yes, are your questions. I, I, don't think I, I don't think I ever fully understood how much happens in Spain in 1492 until I read chapter three. So everybody yeah. go dive in and uh, find out more. All right. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I hope that I asked um, some decent questions about a very, very rich and wonderful book. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And as always, a thanks to Soham Shiva for creating the music and Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.